The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Well, before we get started with our study of God's Word this morning, we need to make sure that we are indeed ready and prepared for worship. John chapter 4, which we'll be studying in a few weeks, we learn that we worship by means of truth, that is, by means of doctrine. Worship is, so many people today are confused about the whole concept of worship. They confuse worship with ritual. They confuse worship with emotion. I don't know how many times. I remember teaching a series about 10 years ago to my congregation on worship. And for two or three months, I repeated over and over again that the criteria for worship is always objective. That means it is measured by the objective standard of truth, doctrine, the Word of God. It is never measured by how we feel. If you leave church and you say, I felt like I worshipped this morning, you have just made a false statement. Because emotion is never evaluated in terms of subjective impression. People can go to many churches that have no true doctrine, have a lot of good singing, have a lot of emotion, what I call emotional devotionals, and you leave and you say, oh, that just was so uplifting. And we've all been to services like that, and we leave, and there is this, this very emotional lift to the whole time. We say, well, what did I learn? How was I advanced in my spiritual life at all? In what sense did I, did I give or show obedience to God by learning and submitting to his word? And see, that's the essence of the Greek and Hebrew words for worship, is they have to do with submission to authority. And we submit to God's authority by learning his word, his mandates for us, how he has instructed us, and then we submit our volition to that. So that is why we say here at Preston City Bible Church that we believe that the study of God's word is the highest form of worship. Because in studying God's word, we learn how God wants us to think. We have the mind of Christ. The scripture is called the mind of Christ, and that is the teaching of Scripture. So we have to learn before we can apply. And so when Jesus taught about worship, he said those who worship must worship by means of the Holy Spirit, that's the filling of the Holy Spirit, and by means of truth, that is Bible doctrine, the Word of God. He doesn't mention singing, although that is a part of worship. That is not the criteria for worship. That's the other major trend today is to define worship as singing, and you will go to many, many churches, and they will have what's called a worship leader. And the worship leader is what we used to call, what we here call, the song leader. The worship leader is no longer the pastor teacher who is communicating the Word of God. And yet that is where the core of worship takes place at any given time, is in relationship to the teaching of the Word of God and our response to the Word of God. So worship is never mentioned. Jesus doesn't say worship by means of the Spirit and singing. Left out. Doesn't say anything about emotion. 
It's objective criteria. So we always need to remember that. And the first element, of course, in worship is the filling of the Holy Spirit by means of the Holy Spirit. And we're filled with the Holy Spirit when we confess our sins. Whenever we sin, the Bible says that we grieve the Spirit, we quench the Spirit. Uh, Psalm said, the psalmist writes that if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. That whenever we sin, it sets up a barrier between us and the Lord in terms of our ongoing temporal relationship with him. We don't lose our salvation. We can never lose our salvation. But there is a temporary uh, barrier called uh, quenching or grieving the Holy Spirit that is erected between us and God, and that is removed by the use of 1 John 1, 9, private confession of sin to the Father. doesn't mean, doesn't call for uh, histrionics or emotionalism or excessive guilt or anything like that or guilt feelings, just simply acknowledging and admitting our sin to God and the consequence is that immediately we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we're restored to fellowship with God so we can move forward in the spiritual life, take in his word and worship him by means of the Holy Spirit. So with that, let's, we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer before we study God's word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this wonderful morning that we get to come together as a body of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to look into the incredible depths of your word, to, to begin to plumb the wisdom that is there, to explore all of the doctrines that you have given us, the teaching that you have given us, that we might renovate our thinking, renew our minds, that we might expose all of our thinking to the piercing light of your word, that we may be able to uh, change, be renovated, transformed under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, into the character of Jesus Christ. That is your goal for us, that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. So, Father, now as we look into your word, pray that we can understand it, that it will be clear, and that we will be able to concentrate on it. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. One of the most difficult concepts for any of us to understand truly and wholly and fully is the concept of grace. This is a concept that, that very few Christians have understood over the years, and it is one of the major problems we see with the, the Galatian believers in our study of the epistle to the Galatians. We see that the problem with law, the problem with legalism, the problem of confusing morality with spirituality is not a problem that begins with our day-to-day, but it is a problem that has plagued the church from the very beginning. That's why Paul penned this letter to the Galatian believers. He was incredibly concerned because of where they were going in their thinking and their confusion of morality with spirituality and their confusion of works as a means to salvation and as a means to the spiritual life. And very few people have truly understood the distinctions. In fact, if we look deeply at what we're studying in Galatians chapter 3, we discover that that Paul is making some profound points that we must understand. Now, this is not an easy chapter to understand. There are some technical theological issues that underlie this passage. There are some important doctrines related to covenants, 
related to God's plan and purposes in history, which we call dispensation. All of this is fundamental to understand and to have as a framework if we're going to understand what Paul is telling us about law and grace in Galatians chapter 3. However, we live in an era and in a culture when people don't want to study, they don't want to think, they want to come to church and they want to emote and they want to feel better, but the last thing they want to do on a Sunday morning is concentrate and really think about deep things. And yet that's what we must do if we're going to understand God's Word at all in any passage, but especially in Galatians chapter 3. This is not a simple passage. In fact, as I was studying this last week, and usually I can, although it's a little sometimes a little intense, I can usually crank through a passage of two or three verses or more in uh, uh, seven or eight hours. I spent three days and up till late last night trying to organize the flow of thought and the teaching in our passage that we're looking at this morning in Galatians chapter 3. So open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 3. One of the commentaries I looked at and trying to wrestle with some of the more complex issues in this passage. In one of those commentaries, the author commented that this is notoriously difficult to interpret. So we are going to make our stab at it today, and I think one of the reasons it is notoriously difficult to interpret is because most theologians approach this from the wrong vantage point. Rather than approaching this from the viewpoint and standpoint of grace and understanding grace and having a knowledge of grace, rather than coming to it with a true and accurate understanding of the Abrahamic covenant and the entire covenantal structure, and by that I don't mean covenantal theology, but I mean the covenantal structure of human history, which revolves around the Abrahamic covenant and, as we saw, the, the, uh, Palestine, or the real estate covenant, the Davidic Covenant, and the New Covenant. If you don't understand that, which we've gone over in detail the last two or three weeks, it's going to be very difficult, according to what Paul says here in Galatians 3, to even have a clue as to what God is doing in your life, in your spiritual life, in the spiritual life of the church age, and how important this is. What we learn from these next verses in this chapter is that the spiritual life that God has provided for the church-age believer today is phenomenal. The, the vast array of spiritual assets that God has provided to us under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit is unique in all of human history. Never before has an individual believer had so much available to him in terms of divine power as he does today. And this did, didn't just happen accidentally. What we have seen in our previous study of Galatians 3 is that this began in the Old Testament. It was originally promised by God. This is why the study of history is so important. Unfortunately, unfortunately for most of us, we grew up in an educational system where people did not understand history other than a mass collection of unrelated facts. Only when you come to history as a believer, where you understand that history is not just random events that have happened in history, but is literally, as somebody has said many times, his story. It is the outworking of the plan of God for human history. And it has a purpose, it has a direction, and it has a goal. 
And if you do not understand those facets, the purpose of God for human history, which is to save mankind, the goal of human history, which is the messianic kingdom, which we call the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ. And if you don't understand the basic mechanics, which involve two critical issues, sin and grace, then you will never truly understand what is going on in human history. You may understand a lot of details. You may be able to understand a certain number of of historical facts and a certain number of historical events in the microcosm. But you will never be able to fully understand how they fit into the whole picture of human history if you don't have the Word of God as the blueprint for understanding history. And it all revolves around a very, uh, it all revolves around a very special covenant which God gave to an Old Testament man by the name of Abram originally and then his name was changed to Abraham. And we call that the Abrahamic covenant. And that is given initially in seed form in Genesis chapter 12, and then later in Genesis chapter 15, it is specifically given to Abraham when God cuts a unilateral, and that's the literal translation from the Old Testament, you cut a covenant. You make it, that's what it means to make a covenant. When God cut a, co- a covenant with Abraham, that became known as the Abrahamic covenant. It had three aspects to it. It had a, a promised land, a seed, which ultimately refers to the Lord Jesus Christ, which we saw last week in our study of Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, and it included a blessing for all Gentiles. Now, this is the background that we've looked at. The Abrahamic covenant itself was further expanded in three subsequent covenants. The first of these was we call the real estate covenant because it defined the property that God was going to give to the descendants of Abraham, which became known as the Promised Land. It's a huge amount of land. It goes from the river of Egypt, which may be the Nile, but it's probably another uh, river just to the uh, northeast of the Nile, all the way to the river Euphrates, up through Syria, Damascus, all of that area, including much of Saudi Arabia. Israel has never, ever occupied all of the land that God promised them. That tells us that eventually... It will be fulfilled because God does not go back on his promises. Promise to seed. This was expanded on in the Davidic covenant. God promised to David that there would be an eternal uh, king on his throne that was a descendant of David. That is why one of Jesus' titles is Son of David, indicating his royalty. And then there would be a blessing. And this is really the focus of this passage in Galatians chapter 3 as Paul is uh, explaining to us the significance of the blessing to excuse me blessing to all Gentiles. This was further developed in Jeremiah chapter 31 and Ezekiel chapter 25 as the new covenant. And Jesus Christ, uh, Jesus Christ established the new covenant on the cross in His spiritual sacrifice on the cross as a substitute for our sins. Now that's the background we've been studying the these topics for the last three or four weeks and the blessing in the Abrahamic covenant was a promise that was expanded in the new covenant as a promise of the ministry of the Holy Spirit and we studied the seven salvation ministries of the Holy Spirit five of which are unique to the church age this is why we have this emphasis on promise in verses 14 through 18 and after his discussion of this that at this point in approximately 
2050 B.C., God gave the covenant to Abraham, and then it is not until approximately 1445 B.C. that God made a covenant with Moses, wherein the Mosaic law was given, that Paul's argument here is that if the Abrahamic covenant was given by grace, there were no strings attached. It was a unilateral covenant. God alone, when they made a covenant, whenever any kind of contract was enacted in the ancient world, a sacrifice would be made. An animal would be taken and would be killed to mark, to ratify the covenant, and it was a very solemn occasion. At the time that God gave the covenant to Abraham, the sacrifices were laid out on an altar, and then it was when it was time for the two participants to walk between the sacrifices to signify that both parties were bound by that covenant, God caused a deep sleep to come on Abraham. He anesthetized him, knocked him out. And God alone moved through the sacrifices, signifying that God alone was bound by this covenant. It wasn't a conditional covenant. God was going to fulfill all of his promises regardless of Abraham's behavior. It was not a covenant that said, Abraham, if you do this, this, and this, then I will give this to you. Abraham, I promise to give this to you, and it's not based on anything you or your descendants do. It was a unilateral covenant. But the Mosaic Covenant is a conditional covenant, and it was had a specific purpose, but it had nothing to do with salvation, and it had nothing to do with the spiritual life. It had another purpose. And so after going through these last 18 verses, where Paul has established the fact that the law is not the basis for righteousness, that in order to get into heaven you have to have plus R because God's character is such that he has plus R, perfect righteousness, and absolute justice. And we have seen that what the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God provides as motivated by the love of God and then expressed by the grace of God. Therefore, what the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns. And man is minus R. Man lacks perfect righteousness. The scripture says that all our righteousness is as filthy rags. The very best that we can do, the, the accumulation of all of our good deeds is as filthy rags in the sight of God. Human good is not good enough to merit the favor of God. And therefore, something must be done to solve the problem. And if man is to be declared righteous, then God must impute righteousness to him. And this is what happens at the moment of salvation. So righteousness comes not by the works of the law, but by faith alone in Christ alone. At the moment you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God the Father imputes to you, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is your possession. The Old Testament uses the imagery, you are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. God then looks on you and says, because you are, plus R, because you possess perfect righteousness, I declare you righteous. That's the meaning of justification. So we say justification is by faith alone. Now this is what Paul is arguing up to this point in Galatians chapter 3, that righteousness does not come by the law. So you are neither saved nor sanctified by observing the law. And that brings us to verse 19 and the rhetorical question which someone might ask, why then the law? 
What is the purpose for the law? If the law neither saves nor sanctifies, why did God give the law? And the answer is given in the rest of verse 19 and down into verse 20. It, the purpose of the law we see here in summary for these, in these two verses, the purpose of the law was to restrain sin in Israel until the seed of Abraham should come to whom the promise had been directly made. Now, if, you did, if we hadn't taken time to study the New Covenant and to study the Abrahamic Covenant, to go back and to, to define what is meant by seed, that this relates to the second section of the Abrahamic Covenant that was expanded in the Davidic Covenant, and that the term seed is singular, not plural, and therefore it refers only to the Lord Jesus Christ and that the promise of blessing, this technical term that's related to the third section of the Abrahamic Covenant, is specifically related to the Lord Jesus Christ. If we hadn't taken three or four hours to study that, then when you come to verse 19, you will not understand the terminology that the Apostle Paul is using. And so it becomes a meaningless verse, and people just read right past it and just scratch their head and say, well, what does this mean? It's very simple. Why was the law given? The law was given to point out sin. The, excuse me. The law was given to give us a knowledge of sin, to restrain sin. It was added because of transgressions. It's given to restrain the sin and evil in Israel until the Messiah comes. Now, other passages tell us that the purpose of the law was to point out sin. That's not what the point that Paul is making here. Romans 3.20 says, For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It doesn't say through the law comes spiritual life. It doesn't say through the law comes salvation. Paul says, For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And one of the biggest problems facing believers for centuries has been that even if they do say that you are saved by faith at the moment of salvation, they immediately revert to the law as a means of spiritual life. I'll never forget the first time I ran into this as a pastor in my first church. I made the statement that the Ten Commandments was never given as a basis for salvation or spiritual life, and I thought I was going to have a revolt on my hands. People in that congregation had never been taught the purpose for the Ten Commandments. They thought that the Ten Commandments was the original definition of sin in the Scripture, but the Ten Commandments weren't given until 1445 B.C., and by that time the human race had been in existence for at least 2,000 years. And sin was sin. All of those sins, idolatry, murder, adultery, thievery, all of those were sins prior to the giving of the Mosaic Law. And the Ten Commandments were given to believer and unbeliever alike. They were part of the system of jurisprudence in the nation Israel in order to give, uh, uh, to, to give protection to the nation from two things, criminality and idolatry. Notice, restrain sin and evil. What is sin? Sin includes a, a variety of personal sins, uh, overt sins, mental attitude sins, but it was prim these are overt sins that affect the entire nation, so they relate to criminality. But also there are many statutes in the Mosaic Law that relate to idolatry. 
Idolatry is not, another term for idolatry is religion. Religion is not what we normally think of when we think of evil. And yet anyone who comes along and says there is some other way to God other than Jesus Christ, if that is not true, then don't you think that is the height of evil? Because the scriptures make the astounding claim. Jesus made the astounding claim. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. That is a claim of exclusivity. There is one and only one way to eternal life, and that is by faith alone in Christ alone. Anything else gets you condemnation and eternity in the lake of fire. So if someone comes along and says anything different from that gets you into heaven, then what they're doing is putting your eternal soul in jeopardy. Now, if that's not evil, I don't know what is. That is more evil than anything that anyone like Adolf Hitler or the Ayatollah Khomeini or Saddam Hussein ever thought about doing. Some of the worst evil in all of human history has been done in the name of religion and morality. And that is a concept that very few people can understand. So the law was given to restrain sin and to restrain evil in order to provide security and stability in the nation Israel, and it was given for believer and unbeliever alike to point out sin, Romans 3.20, Romans 5.20. The law came in that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Romans 7.7, Paul reaffirms this. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. So law was given to point out sin. For I would have not known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So in Romans, Paul makes the point that the law was given in order to teach us that we're sinners. But that's not the point he's making here in Galatians. Here he's making the point that the law was given in order to restrain sin, in order to protect the nation until God brought about the coming of the promised seed. So from 1445 B.C. until the coming of Jesus Christ in the Incarnation at the first Christmas and his spiritual atonement on the cross as a substitute for our sins, the law ruled in order to protect Israel, the nation through whom the Messiah would come, in order to provide stability to that nation and in order to perpetuate that nation until God could fulfill his plan and purposes in sending a Savior. So why the law then? What's the answer? Well, the first answer, it was added because of transgression in order to restrain sin. It was obviously temporary. That is, the idea that's embedded here is that the law was temporary in contrast to the Abrahamic covenant as an unconditional covenant. It is forever. God said, I would give the land to Israel forever. So it's a temporary, the Mosaic law is temporary given until the seed should come. Now this fits with the illustration that Paul will use beginning in verse 23 of the tutor. That a tutor only has a temporary function in the Old Testament, or excuse me, in the Roman Empire time, uh, the family would hire a pedagogue. The Greek word is pedagogues, where we get our word pedagogue. And this is a word for, teach, for a teacher or a tutor. 
we might even use the word nanny today. And the pedagogue had a job from the time that the child was an infant until he, he reached the age of adulthood, around the age of 14. It was the role of the tutor to train and teach the child and prepare him for adulthood. But once the age of 14 was achieved, then the tutor was out of a job, and now the child was an adult. So the teacher, the very illustration of a tutor, demonstrates that it is, has a temporary function. The law had a temporary function, and this fits the concept given in 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11, where Paul says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Notice homosexuality is listed among criminal activity and that it is a violation of the law of God. It is not an alternate lifestyle. It is not an option. It is criminality. Immoral men, homosexuals, kidnappers, and liars, and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching or sound doctrine, literally in the, in the original Greek, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So the purpose of the law was to restrain criminality. But well, we learn something else about the law in the rest of verse 19. It was given, and it was, it was given because of transgressions, having been ordained. And the word for ordained is diateges, diategeo. Here it is in the Greek, diategeo. D-I-A-T-A-G-E-O. And this is the aorist passive indicative, which means ordained or given direction. And the ordain is one of those fuzzy Christian words that people are never clear exactly what it means. So it's better to translate this. It was given under the direction of angels. So one thing we learn about the Mosaic Law here, which we don't learn from Exodus, is that God originated it, and it's given through the mediation of angels, and then Moses, and then the people. So there are two mediators in this passage, two mediators, having been directed through angels by the agency of a mediator. So it's directed here through angels, through the agency of a mediator being Moses, until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. So we see things, two things here about why the law is inferior. First reason is it is inferior is because it is temporary and will be abrogated by a later covenant. That's the whole thrust that we studied in, Ezekiel, in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel uh, 36 and Hebrews 8 about the new covenant. It's called a new covenant because it replaces the old covenant. So the Mosaic law was transitory, therefore it is inferior. It was added at the time of Moses and abrogated at the cross. 
that which is not permanent is superior to anything that is temporary. So there is going to be something better. Whatever is permanent is superior to the temporary, so the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. Secondly, it, the reason, second reason it's inferior is there are inferior mediators. Inferior mediators. The law was mediated through angels and Moses. These are creatures. And verse 20 is going to expand on this point so that we understand the importance of a mediator. Verse 20 reads, Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is one. Now what does that mean? We have to understand. See, you have to understand some broader context doctrines in Scripture in order to understand certain passages. You just can't read this and so, Well, Lord, just bless that to my heart this morning and let's go on and just dwell on how wonderful a scripture that is. What is a mediator? We have to stop and ask the question, define our terms. What is a mediator? A mediator is a go-between. A mediator is someone who intervenes between two or more disputants in order to settle or reconcile differences. Who are the disputants? Disputants. On the one hand, there's God. And on the other hand, there's man. God is perfect righteousness. Man lacks righteousness. How can there be uh, a, a solution to the problem because there is a sin barrier erected between God and man and that must be resolved? Well, the Scripture teaches that there is only one God and one mediator. This is the man, Jesus Christ. That is, is in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 5, there is one God and one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. And the term man there emphasizes his humanity. Jesus Christ is undiminished deity and true humanity. He was absolutely sinless. There's no sin in him whatsoever. He was not born with a sin nature. Adam's original sin was not imputed to him because he did not have a sin nature. All of his life he made every decision Without ever yielding to temptation, he was tested in every point as we are yet without sin. This is the doctrine of the impeccability of Jesus Christ, which we studied this last Wednesday night. So Jesus Christ is undiminished deity, which puts him on, the, on God's side, and he is true humanity, which puts him on our side, which means that he is the only person in the universe, the unique person who can act as a mediator or go between, between God and man. The second point that we must derive from chapter tw or verse 20 or must relate to verse 20 is the point that a mediator is not for one party only. What does that mean? A mediator is not for one. In the Abrahamic covenant, I mentioned it earlier, when God ratified the covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, they took the lamb, they took the uh, birds, the sacrifices related to the covenant, and they laid them out on the altar. When it came time to ratify the, the uh, contract, you had God here and Abraham here. Normally, they would walk together between the altars to signify that both were involved. God caused his sleep to fall on Abraham 
God walked through. One walked through. Now, a mediator is not for one. You don't need a mediator for one, whereas God is only one. God alone made these unconditional promises in the Abrahamic covenant. In contrast, because the the Mosaic covenant is a conditional covenant, it demanded these mediators, these temporary mediators, the angels and Moses. So the point that he is making in verse 20, which is really a parenthesis, it's really just an aside to emphasize the point that the Mosaic law and and the fact that it was mediated through angels and Moses is temporary, whereas God is only one and there was no need for a mediator with the Abrahamic covenant. This means that the Abrahamic covenant is superior to the Mosaic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant includes the promise of blessing based on faith. Mosaic covenant, which was to Israel, when it promised blessing, it was based not on faith. This was a promise based on faith alone. The promise in the uh, of blessing in the Mosaic covenant is based on obedience to the Mosaic law because it had to do with national blessing. It did not have to do with salvation or the spiritual life. So verses 19 through 20 of Galatians chapter 3 emphasizes that the law is inferior to the Mosaic covenant because it came through mediators, it was temporary, and it was designed to restrain sin and to protect the nation Israel until the seed of the Abrahamic covenant should come to whom the promise had been made. So that answers the first objection. And there's a second objection in verse 21. The second objection, again, uh, the second objection is strongly denied by the Apostle Paul. Verse 21 reads in the English, Is the law then contrary? Literally in the Greek, it's against the promises of God. If there's some inherent contradiction between the Mosaic law and the promise of God, this would be a second objection someone might raise. Well, Paul, if you said all of this, number one, why even have the Mosaic law? Paul says to restrain sin. Well, then someone might say if its purpose is to restrain sin, isn't that somehow contrary or isn't there a contradiction between the Mosaic law and the promise of God given in the uh, Abrahamic covenant? No. May it never be is sort of a weak or pusillanimous way of stating it in the English. In the Greek, it's meganoida. Very strong negative affirmation. Paul absolutely rejects every inference that somehow there is an internal contradiction between the law and the promise of God, and then he is going to explain why. He denies this contradiction and states that the law was not given for salvation, but to restrain sin in the nation until Israel comes. He says this is um, a wrong, a completely wrong conclusion for the evidence. Now, what does he say? For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. So once again, we come back to the main issue in this entire passage, and that is righteousness. How do we gain righteousness? How do we acquire a righteous standing before God? 
And there are only two answers that are ever given in all of human history. Answer number one is that you receive, you have a righteous standing before God because of what you do. It all boils down to that. I don't care if you're a Hindu, a Muslim, a Mormon, an atheist, Church of Christ, whatever it might be, the bottom line on your theology is that you gain standing before God on the basis of what you do. Only biblical Christianity says you can do nothing. Your very best, even if someone were to be born and never sin, because they're born with the genetic sin nature inherited from their father Adam, to which is imputed a sin nature and which is imputed judgment, even if you were to be born and never sin, you would still be under condemnation because you do not have perfect righteousness. That perfect righteousness can never be gained or acquired by human behavior. It can only be given as a free gift. This is grace. So once again, Paul brings it right back to the subject at hand. How does a person gain righteousness? Verse 21, if a law had been given, a law here is is any law, specifically the Mosaic law, but he uses what's called an anarthrous construction. That means he leaves out the definite article in the Greek, so all you have is namos, N-O-M-O-S. All you have is namos, and when the, in, in Greek grammar, when you leave out the definite article, it doesn't make it indefinite like any law. That's what we have in English. It's either definite or indefinite. In Greek, if you leave out the definite article, it emphasizes the quality of the noun. For if law, a qualitative law, the highest law you can imagine, had been given which was able to impart life. And here he emphasizes, by using the word life, he relates that to plus R. That there is an inherent relationship between the concept of eternal life and the possession of perfect righteousness. So he says, if any law could possibly have been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would have indeed been based on the law. Now, in the Greek here, this is a second-class condition, which indicates that if any law could have been given, but it's impossible, that wouldn't happen. So it indicates the, uh, a negative there. If a law had been given, but it wasn't, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would have indeed been on the basis based on law. So this is the third inferiority of the Mosaic law. The first is it's given by, mediated by inferior mediators. The second is that it was temporary. The third is that it cannot impart life. Three inferiorities to the Mosaic law. It cannot impart life. This brings us down to verse 22. The law was meant to constrain sin and it also constrained or jailed or imprisoned, literally, men under sin so that they might partake of the promise of faith in Christ. The Scripture reads, But the Scripture has shut up all men under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, what exactly does this mean? Well, we have to do a little exegesis here and look at the main verb. The main verb is the aorist active indicative 
atsun ekleo. Looks like this in the Greek. Soon ekleo. S-U-N-E-K-L-E-O. Now, one of the reasons I put this up, put the Greek up on the overhead, is because many people have sort of a funny idea about English translations. English translations did not were not handed down by God. Not even the King James Version. Many people think that the King James Version was good enough for the Apostle Paul then it was good enough for us. But Paul did not speak English at all, so not even Elizabethan English. The Apostle Paul and all of the writers of the New Testament spoke and wrote in Greek. And we need to understand exactly what the nuances are in the original language. In any kind of literature, anything you read or study, if it is a translation, you are just one or two steps removed from what the original actually says. I got a phone call last night, which was encouraging to know that this takes place in this country, and I thought you'd be interested in this. One of the men who attended the pastor's conference that I taught, where I taught at, in Memphis a couple of months ago called me, and he was, he's teaching through James, and he's in James 4, and he had hit a brick wall, so he wanted a little... ...been working through the passage in, in James... And I just vaguely remembered who he was, and uh, we, we talked through that. And I, he was telling me about his ministry. He took this church over uh, three years ago, had 300 members in San Diego. He now has 700 members. He said he couldn't do, he, he's gradually brought his people along to where now, what he does when he teaches on Sunday morning and on Wednesday night is he takes a Xerox copy of the page out of the interlinear Greek text and he puts that up on the overhead for his congregation so they can... Now, he doesn't know much Greek. He knows enough Greek to where he can read the words and he can look a few things up in Expositor's English Dictionary and a few other things like that which are crutch tools for English speakers who don't know Greek. And that gives him the ability to, to pull a few good things out of the text. But he is gradually teaching his people that they have to go back to the original language. And that's just exciting to know that there are congregations like that and that there are pastors like that around this country who have that kind of vision still and who are not afraid to teach their congregations and that there are congregations that aren't afraid to learn. We have to look at this word because it means something a little more than what we find in the English translation of Galatians 3.22, at least in the New American Standard. New American Standard says the Scripture has shut up all men. Now, what does that mean, to shut up? Well, we know that in our uh, slang it means to make quiet. That's not what this is talking about. It literally means, it's used in Luke 5, 6 to describe capturing fish in a net. It literally means to confine, to hold, to imprison. To confine, to hold, or to imprison. So we get a totally different image of this verse, a totally different idea in our mind when we say the Scripture has imprisoned all men under sin. 
What does that mean? That means that God gave... The Scripture here in context would refer to the law, the Mosaic law. When you understand what the law says, the law sets down all of the mandates. There's over 500 different mandates in the Mosaic law. It's not just ten commandments. There's over 500, I think there's like 531 different mandates in the Mosaic law. And you have to obey every single one of them. No one can do it. No one ever could. That demonstrates that everybody is a sinner. They are minus R. They are imprisoned by these mandates and their inability to solve the problem. So here they are in prison. The prison of sin. How do you escape the prison of sin? When you're in prison, you have no freedom. When you are in prison, you are left with no options. When you are in prison, there is nothing you can do to get out of prison on your own. The Scripture has imprisoned all men under sin. Why? Purpose clause. Hina in the, in the Greek gives us a purpose clause. That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. What is this saying? This is saying that when you realize that you are imprisoned by sin and that there is no way out, then and only then do you realize that the only way to get out is if someone from the outside lets you out. And that's understanding grace. The purpose for the law then is to show that there is nothing man can do to ever acquire the perfect righteousness of Christ. So far we have seen in verses 19 through 20 that the law was not given as a path to salvation but to restrain sin until the coming of Christ at the first advent. The second thing we've seen is that the law is not inconsistent with the promise to Abraham in verses 21 through 22, but was given in order to make that, to bring that promise, those promises, to fulfillment. The third thing that Paul says about the law here in this passage is in verses 23 to 25. That is that the law served as a pedagogue, as a tutor, to restrain sin and to lead us, that is, Jews, to Christ, to the Messiah, until he came. The law served as a tutor to restrain sin and to lead Jews to Christ until he came. That takes us to verse 23. Here, Paul says that before faith in Jesus was realized, Jews were protected by the law until the coming of faith. Let's read the verse. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. He starts off and he, uses, he says, before faith came. What does he mean, before faith came? Does that mean that nobody in the Old Testament could have faith? No, that's not what he's saying. Any human being, since Adam, can exercise faith and does exercise faith. Anytime they learn anything from someone else, they believe it to be true, and that's faith. Faith is non-meritorious. What does he mean, before faith came? Well, first of all, in the Greek, this is the noun pistis. P-I-S-T-I-S. But here it is anarthrous. That means there is no definite article. And as I just pointed out a minute ago, when the definite article is missing in Greek, it emphasizes the quality, the quality of the noun. That's going to throw us back to what he just said in verse 22. What did he say there? 
It's in the purpose clause. That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, that's a long phrase, and Paul's getting a little excited about the subject of law here. So rather than repeating the whole phrase, he just uses the word faith, because faith is the issue in justification. So truly what he's saying here is, but before the promise by faith in Jesus Christ came. See, that's the subject, that whole clause. The promise by faith in Jesus Christ. But he's using sort of a shorthand because he's in a hurry. And he's, he's making the point. But before the promise by faith in Jesus Christ came, we, who's the we here? Who's the we? It's always important to identify who he's talking about. He says, we were kept in custody, and there's our same word again, sunekleo, meaning kept in prison, before the promise by faith in Jesus Christ came, this is the incarnation, the first Christmas, before the promise by faith in Jesus Christ came, we Jews were kept in prison under the law. We're right here. We Jews. The Mosaic Law was not given to everybody. The Mosaic Law was given to be the constitution, the system of jurisprudence for the nation Israel in the Old Testament. Gentiles were never expected to abide by the precepts of the Mosaic Law. But before the promise by faith came, we were kept, we Jews were kept in custody under the law, being imprisoned to the faith which was later to be revealed. Being imprisoned, let's expand that out, being imprisoned to the promise by faith in Jesus Christ, which was later to be revealed. This is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, the promise of blessing to Jew and Gentile, universal salvation for everyone. Now, that's going to be very important because of what's coming up. Just a hint, you've got to see the flow in this whole passage. It's a very intricate argument. It demands concentration and thought. In verse 28, he's going to say that related to the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit, he's going to say there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. What do you say? Neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. In the Old Testament, there was a distinction, an ethnic distinction between Jew and Gentile. The conclusion that he's going to get to from here is that you start with the promise in the Abrahamic covenant. From the promise, you go to the one who who enacts that promise, which is the seed, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, when he ratifies the new covenant. This all shows that the old covenant, the law, was temporary for several reasons. It couldn't give life. It was mediated by inferior mediators, and it was abrogated, so therefore the law was was temporary. This is not in contradiction to the promise, but was given to restrain Israel, to restrain sin and evil in Israel, criminality, until the Messiah could come. And all of this was designed, is illustrated, just as in our culture today, a tutor works for a temporary time between birth and adulthood in order to prepare and mature them for the coming of adulthood. So the tutor, the law, prepared Israel for the coming of Messiah. That's what this is all about. And the conclusion is going to be, now you... Believer, church-age believer, because there is no Jew or Gentile in the body of Christ, because we are all one in the body of Christ, 
you have a vast array of incredible blessings. These come under the category of promised by means of the Spirit. These ministries of God the Holy Spirit in your life. This is our possession today, which very few Christians today understand. They misunderstand the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They, they identify it with emotionalism. They identify it with ecstatics. They identify it with speaking in tongues. And it doesn't have anything to do with any of those. It has to do with your power. Your ability as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ to live the unique spiritual life and thereby be everything God intends for you to be and experience all of the contingent blessings God has for you both in time and in eternity. And that's Paul's argument here. It's very intricate. It's very detailed. It's based on a number of issues from the Old Testament. And his conclusion is that you better wake up and quit trying to earn all this through morality because as long as you do that, you will never, ever have what God has for you today and you're going to blow it and be a failure in the Christian life. The Mosaic Law not only won't get you saved or sanctified, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're trying to follow the Mosaic Law, it will destroy your spiritual life. That's the point that he's making here. This is powerful, and very few people understand it. Therefore, the law, verse 24, therefore the law has become our tutor, our pedagogue, literally, to lead us to Christ. Why? It points the way. It prepares us. Just as a tutor works in that child's life to prepare him for adulthood, so the law worked in the nation Israel to point the way and to prepare them for the Messiah. Why? For the purpose clause that we might be. And why is this, why is this particular verb in the subjunctive mood? Because it emphasizes potential. It emphasizes the potential which is dependent upon each person's individual volition. It's up to you to make a decision about Jesus Christ. I can't make it for you. Your parents can't make it for you. No one else can make that decision for you. The issue is yours. You have to decide what you believe about Jesus Christ. And then verse 25. But now that faith has come. What faith is he talking about here? He's talking about that whole clause that we saw back in verse 22. The promise by faith. That is blessing to the Gentiles by faith alone in Christ alone that God promised Abraham back in the Abrahamic covenant that through your seed all nations will be blessed. He is saying here, but now that faith, that promise by faith in Jesus Christ has come in the first advent, in the incarnation, in order that we are no longer under a tutor. We, Jews, are no longer under a tutor. What Paul is saying to the Gentiles in Galatia, now get this, he's just told them that, that the point is that being a tutor is a temporary function. And now that Christ has come, there's no longer a need for a tutor, so not even Jews are under the Mosaic Law anymore. So when these Judaizers have come into in, to Galatia, and they taught you that you have to go back under the law and you have to be circumcised and you have to follow the law, they were so wrong because they're not even under the law anymore. Once the promise was fulfilled, the law is abrogated for everyone, Jew and Gentile. Okay, let's wrap this up in terms of a conclusion, sort of a quick summary. Number one, God made a promise to Abraham 
that through his seed, that is Jesus Christ as we've seen in context, God made a promise to Abraham that through his seed, the entire world, Jew and Gentile, would be blessed. Point number two, that seed is Jesus Christ. Point number three, Jesus paid the price for sin, the sin penalty. We get back here to our, our, our illustration. Paul said, we are all in prison. What sets us free? This is the concept of redemption, the payment of a price, the freedom from the slave market of sin. Jesus Christ redeemed us. We saw this all the way back in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. You see how this all ties together. You see how he take, Paul, in this phenomenal argument, takes all of these different strands and weaves them together to present this powerful conclusion about our unique spiritual life. We were imprisoned by sin, imprisoned by the law, but Christ paid the penalty and redeemed us from the curse of the law. That's point three. Jesus paid the price, the sin penalty, and redemption. Every time you hear the word redemption, you ought to think about payment of a price. Thus freeing man from the curse of the law. Sin is no longer the issue. Point four. What was the curse of the law? Bondage. To demonstrate that man had no options for salvation other than someone else doing the work. When you're in prison, you can't do anything. Someone else must do it for you. You can't get out. Point number five. That work was done completely and totally by Jesus Christ on the cross. Point number six. The law was added 430 years after the promise in order to protect the nation from criminality and idolatry until the Messiah came. It was designed to protect and preserve the nation Israel until the Messiah could come. Point seven, once the Messiah came, he fulfilled the law. Jesus said, I came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. He fulfilled the promise, established the promise, and the law was no longer necessary. Point eight, the law was inherently, inherently inferior because it was temporary and mediated through inferior mediators. And point nine, the promise is superior because it is permanent and mediated through the second person of the Godhead in hypostatic union. That's the point. You see, back when we studied, looked at that passage in verse 20 about a mediator, there is only one mediator. Here's God. Here's man, here's the sin barrier. But Jesus Christ functions as the mediator, fulfilling that unconditional role. Just as God alone walked through the sacrifices, Jesus alone, who is fully God, pays the penalty for our sins. Not in His deity, but in His humanity. Because He is perfect humanity, true humanity, He can die as our substitute. But because He is also undiminished deity, His sacrifice has infinite value so he can die for the entire human race. He is the mediator of the new covenant is superior to the mediators of the old covenant. Point number 10, the result. You are saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone and as a result you receive the unparalleled blessings and assets of the unique spiritual life of the church age. And that comes, and part of that comes, with what is called the baptism with the Holy Spirit, which is a much misunderstood doctrine and a vital doctrine for us to understand because it undergirds so much of our spiritual life today and who we are in Jesus Christ. And we'll cover that next week 
in verses 27 through 29. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we just stand in awe of your magnificent redemptive plan that you look at human history as something that continually unfolds and you have have worked throughout history to bring about your plan of salvation. It is not something random. It is not something that just happened, but something that you built stage by stage. And we see this from the development of the, or the giving of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12 through its uh, various uh, expansions in the real estate covenant, Davidic covenant, new covenant, and how all of this fits together and culminated and prepared the way for Jesus Christ. Father, right now, if there's anyone here who is not sure of their eternal salvation, they're not certain of their eternal destiny, may they know from the Scriptures that there is only one way to heaven, that's through Jesus Christ. All they need to do is in the privacy of their soul say, Father, I accept Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. I believe in Him. That's all that's necessary. There are no works involved. You don't have to join a church. You don't have to reform your life. You don't have to repent of your sins. All you have to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and to reflect upon them in the coming week, that we might be impressed with your so great salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.